you can find in your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. If you'll make your way there, is like I said, first Sunday of Advent, we're kicking off our Christmas series today. Welcome to those joining us online today. Thank you for uh, watching our message portion of our service. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, for the next several weeks, next four weeks, particularly looking at verse 6. Uh, one of the more well-known Old Testament passages for, that we sometimes think about at Christmas, uh, where Isaiah reveals to us that the Messiah would be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so those titles, those characteristics of the Messiah, we're going to be looking at the next four weeks. Uh, and this Messianic prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, was given at a time in Israel's history uh, when they needed hope. It was a very hopeless feeling time for Israel, and hope was coming. And as has been said, hope had a name. Hope has a name. And maybe this Advent season, you could use some hope. Maybe, uh, for, you know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but for many, the holiday season is a very, de- really uh, discouraging and depressing time. People, that, uh, many people struggle with anxiety and depression uh, at a higher level uh, in the holiday season, maybe than other times um, even. If people struggle with loneliness, they may feel even more lonely in a season like this and so forth. And uh, so for many, holidays are not cheerful for various reasons. They are difficult. And so we know hope is needed in those times and all over our city. All over our state, all over our nation, people are in need of hope. Marriages are struggling this holiday season. Parents are stressed. Inflation is rising. Gas prices are surging. Culture wars are raging. And in the midst of all that, people are dealing with their own personal stuff that don't have anything to do with a lot of that. In the middle of all that, people have their struggles at home and at work and in their private lives. Many people need hope. Hope And our hope, we know, uh, in, as, in Christ, in, as Christians, as those in Christ, our hope's not in the economy or politicians or Western culture or even our great country. Our hope is in a true and better king that will one day bring the consummation of a future hope. And until then, we know that he showers our lives with hope and love and peace and joy and those things that get celebrated around the Advent season. And in Isaiah 9, we see this messianic prophecy given to God's people when they needed hope in a very dark season, and I think there is something here in it for us today as well. So look with me, Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 9 here, the context is darkness, a dark time, a time of gloom as you can see, but it's prophesied here in verse 2, a light was coming. This prophecy happened about 700 years before Jesus was born. The king of Judah at this time was a man named Ahaz. Listen to how Ahaz is described in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 2 through 4. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God and his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Ahaz was an evil king, an evil king. So evil, we see here, sacrificed his own son to some false god. Judah uh, suffered under his reign. Uh, God's people suffered under his reign. And he was king when Isaiah chapter 9 was written and when it was prophesied. During his reign, the king of Israel and the king of Syria came against him and attacked him uh, and God's people. This was due uh, to Judah. And this was due uh, to his own wickedness. God actually disciplined him and disciplined the nation uh, through allowing Israel and Syria to attack them. Second Chronicles 28.5 says, Therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. So things were bad at this time. Second Chronicles notes that the Edomites and the Philistines had also invaded and made raids against Judah at this time. It was a very bad time as they suffered under Ahaz's leadership. And so Ahaz goes to get help, right? That's what a king does. He needs help at this time. And where does he turn? Does he turn to the Lord? No, he turns to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the big bad bullies in the land at the time, right? Everybody, the Syrians, Assyrians, difference there. Assyrians, Israel, everybody's afraid of the Assyrians at this time. And so he says, I'll go to the Assyrians and get help. And rather than turn to the Lord and seek him and repent of my idolatry and my sinfulness, instead, he says, I'll, 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 just, I'll get out of this by going and get this other nation to help me. And Isaiah 7, a couple of chapters before Isaiah 9, says that when Israel and Syria came up against Ahaz and against Judah, that the heart of the people shook. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz at this time. And he tells him that they have come against him to conquer and set up a new king. And the Lord goes on to tell Ahaz that he needs to ask for a sign for the Lord. I want you to trust me. Ask for a sign. I'll prove that you can trust me. But Ahaz says he won't do that because he doesn't want to put the Lord to the test. Now listen, when God tells you to do something and you act spiritual back and like, well, I can't do that. And you're trying to out-spiritual God. That's what Ahaz tries to do. He's pretending uh, like he doesn't want to do that. But really, he just doesn't want to seek the Lord. He doesn't want to repent of his sin. And God wanted Ahaz to trust him, but he was not willing to trust God. And so Ahaz does something foolish. Rather than turn to God, he turns to the Assyrians. And 2 Chronicles 28, 19 says this, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz. Because of Ahaz, the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had made Judah act sinfully. And had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pilser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So his plan, in other words, didn't work out like he wanted. 
He ends up, uh, him, and Judah and Israel, uh, actually both, uh, end up subservient during this time to the Assyrians. And so his plan backfires. He couldn't outthink and outscheme God. And Assyria, whom he trusted, turns on him. And it's a picture. It's a picture. This whole story is a picture of inept, ungodly, weak leadership. And Ahaz leads the people into sin and brings all kinds of pain upon them. Much of Judah at this time becomes apostate, and most people even reject the preaching of Isaiah when it comes along. If you're familiar with Isaiah, you know that's part of his story, is that he's preaching and people don't listen. People reject him. Legend is he died a martyr's death. And Ahaz is a picture of a foolish ruler. He goes and makes plans that he thinks will protect him, protect his people, but ultimately brings destruction upon him and his people. Because his plans are actually made in rebellion against God. He was a rebellious, sinful king. And he didn't care about God's ways. He cared about what he wanted. And in the end, everyone suffered for it. And it's during this scene, during this time that Isaiah 9 is given and the prophecy that we read about this coming child, this coming son, this wonderful counselor that would come. So you think about how do we apply, think about this and bringing this into today. Listen, Nothing's changed in some ways, right? Every world leader is a sinner. Did you know that? Every world leader. No world leader is perfect. People today at times suffer from foolish decisions from leaders. And at times, oppressive regimes we know that exist in the world. And by the way, you're a sinner too. And I'm a sinner too. And our lives suffer under our own leadership many times. We've all been like Ahaz at some point, haven't we? We've all not trusted God, not obeyed God, instead chosen to go about things our way. And like Judah, we've all put our hopes in the wrong things, the wrong people, false gods, as we've talked about before. And much like Isaiah's day, we live in a day of darkness. People look everywhere but to God. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, no one seeks God. No, not one. No one on their own seeks God. We've all, like sheep, the Bible tells us, gone astray. Because our problem and Ahaz's problem, Judah's problem, is the same. It's ourself. It's our sin. We're the problem. Time marches on, but the problem continues, and the problems we see in the world, they continue to arise, whether it's in world leaders or in people's personal lives. Sin wreaks havoc. Damage comes. Uh, people uh, make bad decisions, poor decisions, try to scheme and plan their way out of it, and bring more suffering into their lives, into their marriages, into their families, and into their nations than they had intended before. And what Judah needed is what we need, a true king, a better leader, a true deliverer. And the good news of the Bible and of Christmas is that God hasn't left us to ourselves, but has sent his promised son, the, the true king, the Messiah. And in chapter 9 here, verses 1 through 5, the prophecy focuses on what is coming, right? This coming kingdom, what it's going to be like, what's coming. Verses 6 and 7 focus on who's coming. In verse 1 there of chapter 9, um, G.V. Smith of the New American Commentary, writer of the New American Commentary on Isaiah, points out that this verse may actually refer to the result of the Assyrian attack, this gloom coming into this land. And he goes on to say this, quote, This verse surprisingly predicts that the least likely area of Israel, the far northern section that was the most militarily oppressed and most influenced by pagans, will in some way be honored by God when he sends a new light in the future, right? Speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Christ. Verse 2, he talks about the light that, ha- that comes with the Messiah that shines in the darkness, changing the se- situation, changing things spiritually. A-, a light has shined and it will expel the darkness. John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 tells us 
of Christ, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Echoing there, Genesis chapter 1, but also echoing there, Isaiah chapter 9. And in verses 3, 4, and 5 here of chapter 9, we see a description of the kingdom of this person revealed, that's going to be revealed in verse 6. It's the kingdom of the king. It's the reign of the Messiah and what it will look like. Joy, rejoicing, freedom from oppression and suffering, justice, peace. These are the things that, that characterize his kingdom. Victory, the end of all war. That's what you see there when he talks about the, uh, there in verse, um, go back and look at it, verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's that about? It's the end of all war. Such a victory that is one that there, it, it, war's over forever. The once and for all final victory. And so we look around and we see that this is going to be a kingdom of light and joy and peace. And it characterizes the kingdom of this king. And you might ask, well, where's that at? <laughs> Doesn't feel that way right now. And we have to remember uh, that the Bible tells us and teaches us as we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, that there's a first advent and there is a second advent. And you and I are living in between those two advents. So in a very real sense, the kingdom of God is here. It has been inaugurated with the first advent of the king coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom, though, will not come in finality or be consummated until his second advent when he returns. And so perfect justice and peace is to come. But in right now, we live in between. Right now, we don't always see perfect justice or perfect peace. Currently, we know there, isn't, there aren't these things. We still see oppression. But through Christ, we have victory over sin, we can have victory over death, and we await a finality of our salvation and ultimately heaven coming to earth and experiencing all these things that this passage speaks of. But in the meantime, we know that this child, this son, is here. It says here in verse 5, a chi- uh, in verses 6 and 7, a child has been born, and then he says, a son is given. So a child, a human being, Okay, speaks to the humanity of the Messiah, born a, a baby, right? And then it said a son is given, and that's important because he's a rightful heir to the throne of David. But also, we know, points us to the fact that this is the son of God. He had to be one on whom that the government could actually rest upon his shoulder, right? <laughs> There's really no one else like that. We see that in world leaders. The government resting upon their shoulders, it's, it's a bad idea. It doesn't, it doesn't go well. There's no leader that's perfect. That's why, you know, here in our country, our forefathers, they developed all these different branches of government because they didn't want the government to rest upon one person's shoulder. And so there's really only one that's ever lived or ever will live who's, who can really bear the weight of the government in this kind of way. And he's both human and divine. He's the child who has been given, who is the son, he is the son who has been given, the child who has been born, the son who is given, the son of God, the true king, capable of leading this kind of kingdom, ruling in this kind of way, bringing perfect peace, perfect justice. The son is prophesied two chapters early in chapter 7 as well. When Ahaz refuses to seek the Lord and the Lord says, ask for a sign, and he says, no, you know, I'm too spiritual for that. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. And he, instead, I'll just go get help from Assyria. Well, God 
tells him, I'll give you a sign. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a vir- the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A better king is coming. And so the son of Isaiah 7 and the son of Isaiah 9, that's the same person. That's the Messiah, Jesus, we believe now here in the New Testament. Emmanuel here, this name given in chapter 7, verse 14, that just, we know that means God with us, right? We know that if you've seen the Christmas hymns and you've heard enough Christmas messages that we know Emmanuel means God with us, that Jesus is God in the flesh, born of a virgin, God wrapped up in human flesh, the, the God-man. But in chapter 9, what we're get, given is the characteristics of him, what he would be like what his kingdom would be like, how he would lead God's people. And he gives us four categories, four titles, four characteristics. We're going to look at one today, and we're going to look at the other three in the coming weeks and see how these things all tie in with the context. And the first one we see here is that he would be a wonderful counselor. Some actually think this could be two titles, but when you consider that all the others are two titles given making one and how that was a very common thing in the Hebrew, it's best to take this as one title. He's a wonderful counselor. Two words making one title. The word wonderful meaning miracle, extraordinary. Coupled with the title, counselor, that means to give advice, make plans, and make decisions. So this person is going to wonderfully, miraculously, supernaturally carry out the plans of God. His plans will not be able to be thwarted. His counsel will always be perfect. His decision making will be perfect. His decisions will always be the right decisions. Isaiah said two chapters later in another messianic prophecy in Isaiah 11:2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then several chapters later in Isaiah 28, 29, he describes the Lord of hosts this way, title for the Lord, the Lord of hosts. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And when we begin to see is we begin to see that this Messiah is the God-man and this Messiah will be filled with supernatural counsel, decision-making ability. And when the pressure was on Ahaz, He panicked, right? He turned, instead of turning to the one he should have leaned on, instead of turning to Yahweh, he instead turned to a human leader that ultimately led to Judah's suffering and then being being ransacked, then being attacked by the Assyrians. And this was the kind of leadership and kind of counsel God's people had from kings for generations. This wasn't just some new thing. It wasn't like, oh, they got this one lemon of a king. No, most of them were lemons, if you go back and study First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, it, it's just a string of bad leadership. In fact, to the point that the one that we all hold up and say, here was the best king Israel ever had. He wrote most of the psalm. He did all these other things. Well, he murdered one of his best soldiers and had an affair with his wife. So that's their best king. Think about that. Then his son Solomon, who's handed the kingdom, and everything is great, right, and should just flourish. He makes a mess of things, and he turns on the Lord turns to idols, and then after that, as we've studied, you see just series after series of bad kings. From the very start with Saul, with the first king, they had suffered under the leadership. Even their best kings, in other words, they had some good kings, but even their best kings had shortcomings, had flaws, because they were all plagued by the same thing you were plagued by and I am plagued by, and that is a sin nature. But this king would be different. 
this king would be a king whose decisions would always be flawless. He would never make a wrong tactical move. Where Ahaz was a fail, had failed in his strategies and in his decision making, this king's plans would be perfect. He would lead the people in victory and would not need to consult with others and lean on their counsel. He wouldn't even need to do that. He himself would be wonderful, supernatural in counsel. And two takeaways today as we think about Jesus in, the, in this passage. Number one, Jesus is, in fact, the wonderful counselor. This passage is about Jesus. One of the, the things people noticed about Jesus uh, throughout his life and ministry was his wisdom and his teaching. Let me read to you this passage, a uh, well-known passage of Jesus when he was a boy. And his parents could not find him one day. And Luke chapter 2, verses 46 and 47 says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's almost like it was what? miraculous, supernatural, wondrous. They're amazed at his understanding and his answers, even as he was a child and he was, he was interacting with the scholars and of, of his day there in the temple, the people who had years of education, the people that are supposed to have forgotten more things that he knew. They're marveling at what he knew and what he understood. His understanding, his knowledge, his wisdom, showing that he's the wonderful counselor. Then in Jesus' ministry, one of the things that characterized him was unique, his unique authority and his wisdom and his teaching. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, these teachings that he was given at the time, it says, The crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their own scribes. What does that mean? Well, in their day it was common for a teacher, for a rabbi, to get up and teach. And he would say, Well, rabbi so-and-so says this. And he'd say, well, and Rabbi so-and-so, and he says this. And what they would do is they would back up what they believed with the teaching, kind of like I might quote a commentator today or might quote another pastor or quote some well-known figure that's lived and died uh, since then. Uh, Jesus had no need to do it. They would do that to kind of root their authority in these other rabbis and in these other teachers where Jesus gets up and says stuff like this. You have heard that it was said. And he would quote from the law, right? And then he would say, but I say to you, Right? He spoke with an authority unlike any rabbi that had ever taught because he did, he, he's not leaning on other rabbis and their teaching. He, he, he wrote the thing, right? So he's, he's teaching as the author of the scriptures. He's teaching as the author of life. He is teaching as one who has authority and who has wisdom unlike any other because he knows everything about the human design, how you're made, God's word, God's all that. A unique authority, a unique wisdom that taught in a way that opened people's eyes to the scriptures. And the hypocritical teachers didn't know what to do with him. They'd try to trap him. and He would confound them. They'd ask him trick questions, but they could never trick him, right? And they'd walk away going, well, you know, you got a point. You know, they didn't know what to do with him because this is the word made flesh. And Jesus perfectly executed, when you study his ministry and study his life, Another way he shows that he's the wonderful counselor, he perfectly executed the plan and the will of the Father. Perfectly executed it. He defeated sin, death, and hell. He defeated Satan. He did all that the Father sent him to do. Perfectly, strategically, living a sinless life, dying for our sin, rising again in victory. All that he was sent to do, living his life, knowing the entire time he came to die. He actually told his disciples he would be killed and after three days rising again. The cross, see, was not some plan gone wrong. It was the plan. It was always the plan. He came to die. 
And Jesus came willingly laying down his life and doing so, defeating death, defeating Satan, executing God's plan perfectly because he's the wonderful counselor, the perfect strategic king. And his future reign will be characterized with wisdom and supernatural counsel as well. In the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be a vote, right, for who's going to lead, who the government's going to be. He won't vote for congressmen and senators and presidents and governors and mayors. We won't serve, and you won't serve an oppressive king. We won't worry about being attacked. We won't worry about any of these things, famines and droughts or inflation. We won't worry about losing battles or even having battles. There will be no battles to be fought, you know, currently. When someone, you know, whether, you know, it's the governor or whether it's the president, they have like a cabinet, they have a staff, Right, every president, for instance, surrounds himself with a vice president, a secretary of state. They have a national security, what, advisor because they need someone to advise them because nobody's an expert on everything. So they surround themselves with people to get counsel and to delegate and so they can have help in doing this because they need it, because they're very fallible people. We all are. Jesus doesn't need a cabinet. He doesn't need a, a national security advisor. Every decision will be perfect. Everyone will lead to the flourishing of his people. Every single one. There won't be one where you go, man, I wish I could have a do-over on that one. If I could have just seen this coming, you know. In the new heaven and new earth, Jesus will rule and reign and, and lead his people with his wonderful counsel. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. But number two, Jesus brings his wonderful counsel into our lives and we trust him. I'd be willing to bet that like these people, we have all suffered due to bad decisions Bad counsel at times, bad advice, bad planning. Every, even, even our, every decision, even our well-thought-out plans, right? Everything we do is, is flawed many times by our sin clouding our judgment at times. Even, even on our best days, we make mistakes. Even if they're not sins, we make mistakes. You couple that with the sins we make. You ever had buyer's remorse? Yeah. I remember my first experience of that as a child, buying something, having five bucks or so and buying something at a flea market I didn't want. My grandmother had to bail me out and buy it from me because I felt so bad when I got home. Or you bought a car and thought, I wish I wouldn't bought that car. Or you bought a house, you buy a house, you wish you wouldn't bought that house, right? You get this buyer's remorse, a sick feeling, you wish you could get out of it, wish you could undo it. Well, there's also a, a spiritual buyer's remorse. Sometimes we make decisions and we go down a path and we go, you know, if I could have that to do over again, it's because we make decisions in the moment that we think we've got it all figured out, but later we realize, no, that was horrible. <laughs> that was foolish. That wasn't wise or that was sinful. Spiritual buyer's remorse sets in and sin has a way of clouding our judgment and we make sometimes sinful decisions or unwise decisions because we are sinners and because we aren't flawless in our decision-making. So we need a counselor. We need someone to lead us, to guide us, and advise us and direct our path. But even those advisors, many times, they're flawed too. And even giving us the best advice, they can give us wrong advice. So we need supernatural counsel. And when we get Christ, we get the wonderful counselor in our lives. And verse 2 there of the passage we read today, Isaiah 9, 2, so the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. When Christ comes, he brings light. We no longer have to stumble around in darkness. We now have knowledge of God. We have got knowledge of God's will. We have been brought into the light and out of the darkness when we have Christ in our life. We get the one that Paul said in Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge 
are in Jesus. So in Christ, you can live a wise life. You can make wise decisions. We can make wise choices. We can make godly choices. We aren't going to be perfect, but we can mature, and by God's grace, the power of God's Spirit, we can live wise lives. We have the good shepherd leading us, directing us, guiding us. Jesus, what did Jesus say to his disciples? We see it all through the New Testament when he finds a disciple, and he asks him to do what? Follow me, right? Not just trust me, but the way we show we trust him is we, we follow him. We pattern our lives after him. We pursue him. We obey him. We trust him. We follow him. We're to follow the wonderful counselor, listening to his counsel, his advice, his guidance. The wonderful counselor has given us resources so that we can receive and walk in his counsel. Let me give you a few of those. We are to walk in step with his spirit, with the, with the spirit he has sent, the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer who will fill us as we yield to him and will help lead us and direct our steps and direct our path. Jesus even said, what, it's better that I go so that the Spirit will come. And the Spirit leads us into the will of God. And God's Word reveals to us, right, the will of God. And so we don't just walk in step with the Spirit. We're to walk in line with his Word. He's not just given us the Spirit. He's given us his Word. Psalm 119, verse 105, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There, there's something about the Word of God, and it, it, it enlightens. It sheds light. And when we have the Word of God, we can know the will of God, and we have the Word of God to help counsel us. So if we ever need direction, right, we're trying to figure out what to do, first thing you need to do is turn the light on. You ever try to find something in the dark, right, stumbling around, reaching to grab something that's not what you thought it was, and you get and you know, got two different color socks on or whatever because, you know, or two different shoes on because you got dressed in the dark, right? It turns the, the light on. Light opens our eye, helps us to see. Darkness makes it know which direction to go. Everything looks the same in the dark. Everything. Good decisions, bad decisions, they kind of look like the same decision in the dark. But we're to make decisions with the light of God's Word. Trying to make decisions without the light of God's words is like trying to map out directions in the dark. You're going to end up where you don't want to be because every direction looks the same in the dark. So turn the light on. Walk in line with his word. His word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, David wrote. And then we need to walk in a spirit of prayer. He invites us to pray. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you need direction, you need wisdom, let him ask God. Who, will give, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. He, he's not withholding wisdom from you. He wants to shower you with wisdom, but you have, to, you have to ask. We have not because we ask not. So we need to walk in step with the Spirit. We can walk in line with His Word. We can walk in a spirit of prayer, and then we get to walk alongside His people. Community. Proverbs thirteen twenty says, Whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. A, a part of living a wise life, and we've studied Proverbs here, but a part of living a wise life is having people, resources in your life, people that can invest in you and help you in making, uh, making decisions. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And God's people can be a rich resource of wisdom and knowledge and help. And walking with the wise... Begins, by the way, with walking with those who understand that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. You can't walk with the wise if you are always walking with the foolish. Those who say that in their heart there is no God. So we have to surround ourselves 
with God's people. So all these are ways that things that God has given us so that we can be guided by the wonderful counsel of Jesus. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us the gift of prayer. He's given us his people. And Jesus wants to guide your life. He wants to give you counsel, lead you in wisdom, direct your way, lead you into abundant living. So he's giving, given you his, the spirit. He's given you the word, the prayer, and his people. And a lot of times we can know whether we're actually following and listening to the wonderful counselor, whether we're actually accessing the means he's placed into our life to heed his counsel. But, you know, having Jesus as our wonderful counselor begins with seeing the wisdom of God in the cross of Christ. It's at the cross that God has put to shame the wisdom of man. And you can't crucify the wisdom of man, die to the wisdom of man, and live according to the wisdom of God until you first see the wisdom of God in the cross. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Is the cross foolishness to you? Or in Christ and in his cross do you see the power of God and the wisdom of God? See, Jesus died for every sinful decision that you and I would ever make. The ones you've made and the ones you're going to make. And Jesus died to make sinners holy. And he also makes foolish people wise because wisdom's a spiritual issue. That's why there's a whole book on it in the Bible. Christ became to us what? Wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians. And it's Jesus who changes our hearts, who changes our minds, who changes our direction so that we begin to pursue God's ways and to follow his counsel. That starts when we recognize the wisdom of God and the cross of Christ and realize that what we need is a Savior. And what we get when we trust Jesus as our Lord and our Savior is not just a Savior. You also get his guidance. You get his direction. You get his leadership in your life. He leads and he directs. And, and, and not just one day, but in the here and now. But you get him now and for all eternity. So if you're here this morning or if you're watching online today and you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, I would say having his wonderful counsel in your life begins with trusting Christ and believing what he's done for you on the cross in his resurrection. And if you're in Christ today and you're a believer, you say, I've made some foolish decisions and I'm not following Christ here. I'm not following Christ there. I want to get back on track. And getting back on track begins with first, go back to the cross, recognize the wisdom of God and what God has done in sending Christ, repent of our sin and our foolishness, and begin to realign our lives with Christ, resubmit our lives to Christ, and then use the means he's placed in your life with his, the Holy Spirit and his people and prayer and all the things that he's placed in your life to help guide you in your decisions. Let's pray.